Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good afternoon, Team Krulak community, and on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, the Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, Defense Acquisition University, or any other agency of the U.S. government. So in today's episode, we're going to take a look at a mission set that has generated increased discussion with our renewed emphasis on competition and operations <laughs> in the Indo-PACOM region. Amphibious aircraft and seaplanes, once a staple of American naval aviation arms, are getting re-examined as a way to transport large amounts of cargo over long distances to areas that do not necessarily have improved airfields. To talk about the background of this subject, we're joined by Dr. James Roach, who is Professor of Systems Engineering Management in the Department of Engineering and Technology, Capital Northeast Region at the, the Defense Acquisition University. He has a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Manhattan College, a master's in science degree in mechanical engineering from Clemson University, a doctorate in mechanical engineering from the Pennsylvania State University, and a master of arts degree in national security and strategic studies from the Naval War College. Over the past 30 years, he has worked in academia, industry, and the federal government. His work on fundamental and applied research and development and policy applications spans from Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps systems, such as systems engineering and software development for the warfighter, to collaboration with managers, interdisciplinary scientists, and engineers to accomplish projects at the intersection of engineering, science and technology, and management. And that is quite a mouthful on your CV, sir, so we're very lucky to have you today and look forward to hearing your expertise on the subject. So I'll go ahead and turn it over to you. Thank you, Major Brown, and thanks for the opportunity to talk on this uh, subject today. Before I get started, I'd like to acknowledge some of the uh, folks who have gotten me to this point on this subject, uh, Colonel Arthur Corbett and Lieutenant Colonel Gary Lehman and Navy Commander Sean Paxton have been of great assistance in uh, understanding the, the concepts in, of the past and how they apply to today and, and how uh, some of these acquisition programs got to where they, uh, they were successful. I'd also like to acknowledge uh, all of the assistance from my Naval Postgraduate School Innovation Leadership course. Uh, the folks in the course, both the instructors and the production team that I worked with and the students really helped me tune my thinking on this subject. And with that in mind, if anyone within DOD wants additional information on this topic, I offer to share the lessons. So please contact me. Uh, there were many lessons from these acquisition programs on design, servicing, and maintenance. And uh, it's really beyond the scope of what we'll be covering. I'll touch on it, but uh, I'll just be glancing off of it. So. Our topic, the title, Amphibious Aircraft and Seaplanes, Innovations of the Past. What we have here is a watercolor painting from Edward Millman. It's 1944. Lieutenant Millman was a combat artist for the U.S. Navy. And what we see is a series of PBM Mariner seaplanes at anchor in a cove off of the Philippines. So uh, what's not shown is that there's a crewman aboard each aircraft to ensure that if there's, there's any uh, flooding, they can react to it before they lose the, 
the aircraft, there's a roving patrol that's there to support that crewman in an emergency. Uh, there were cases where uh, patrols uh, of Japanese infantry managed to seize a boat and sail out and attack the aircraft. So the, typically the guns would be armed to enable that crewman to defend the aircraft. So there's a lot shown there, even though it's a very peaceful looking storm with the aircraft floating there. So uh, here's our agenda. Uh, my bottom line up front, the aircraft were looked at initially as patrol aircraft, and that was it. Uh, as we learned more about them and we were able to knock down our own bias biases and address some technology gaps, the mission steadily expanded as we were able to recognize new capabilities. So we're going to cover historical themes. We'll use terms and definitions from World War II. Uh, I'll briefly go over the Indo-PACOM map and the tyranny of distance. We'll then go into some doctrine from World War II, from pre-World War II, and then we'll start covering the missions. Uh, Dumbo missions, air-sea rescue of ship survivors, and transport logistics and medevac. So the historical themes, theme one, it's uh, these aircraft connecting with isolated groups. So forces on land, survivors at sea from shipwrecks or uh, ship sinkings, aircrew who have been downed, and then theme two, which is the transport, logistics, and medevac. So we'll also be using German, Japanese, and British examples. And for the sake of uh, time, I'm going to group the isolated force on land theme along with the transport. Uh, it just seemed to flow better that way. So our World War II missions, terms and definitions, patrolling and scouting was the classic mission. That's where we began with the, the seaplane and the amphibious uh, aircraft in the early 30s, they started to become part of a, a weapon system, the Aircraft Carrier Task Force. At the time, that was the primary mission, the idea of landing in the sea and picking up uh, a downed air crew or rescuing people was uh, not considered a part of the primary mission. As the war went on, we started adding missions, air attack, uh, Dumbo missions, which is the, the air crew rescue. The air sea rescue is interesting. I could not find a, a nickname or a name for this. It was just the rescue of ship survivors. And then uh, transport logistics and medevac missions. So they, they would move critical personnel, critical logistics, uh, so radio batteries, uh, medical supplies, uh, critical ammunition, and evacuate wounded. And then there were also design, servicing, and maintenance. A uh, lot of learning going on. So we're going to cover the underlying topics. So they, they dovetail with the themes that we that I mentioned earlier. So here's the Indo-PACOM map. We start out here in San Francisco. It's about 2,000 nautical miles to Oahu. Uh, branching out from there, uh, it's about 3,500 nautical miles to Guam, 4,100 nautical miles to Brisbane, Australia. You can see the aircraft here and their operational ranges. So for the US, we entered the war with the PVY-5 Catalina and the PV-2Y Coronado. Those were the two primary aircraft we had that were seaplanes. Uh, beginning in 1941, we start seeing wheels being added to the Catalina and uh, we have the PVY-5A, 
which is the amphibious version of the aircraft. They flew side by side, the five and the five A. Uh, primary difference being those, those uh, wheels. The PBM Mariner starts appearing in 1942 for the US and it's another uh, two engine aircraft. In 1941, we built a prototype of the Mars series aircraft and it's a four engine aircraft. The Japanese enter the war which with the uh, H8K, which had an allied code name of Emily. And that was known as one of the most superior, uh, if not the best flying boat seaplanes in the world at the time, throughout the war. In fact, we uh, captured several of them and brought one back to the United States for testing at Pax River, along with a, uh, several aircraft from Germany. So it's interesting to see here the ranges of the aircraft. Uh, what's not shown are the weights. So the Catalina is 35,000 pounds, whereas the Mariner, uh, it's also two engine, but it's 58,000 pounds. And so the performance in the sea is different. You have a much stronger, stronger structure in the Mariner and the Coronado. The Coronado was 68,000 pounds. So they perform in a higher sea state than the Catalina. So and then what we have here is the British Short Sunderland, and then some post-World War II aircraft, the P-5M Tac-2 Marlin, which incorporates the lessons from World War II, uh, from the studies of the, the World War II aircraft. The Mariner also is in production until 1949. The Mars aircraft are uh, produced in low-rate production, so there's six of those built in addition to the prototype. The short Sunderland survives after the war, and the, the Navy also purchases or, or builds uh, contracts for the, the trade wind, which I'll show. Today, what's flying is the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force, US Tech 2 Shinmei-Wa. So it's got a comparable range to the World War II aircraft. Typical flight times, or flight speeds, about 170 knots for cruising, and the at least the four engine aircraft would carry a relief crew. So we'll go into a little more detail. I have uh, some more maps later on. Moving on to some of the doctrine. So I mentioned that the PBY starts appearing in the early 30s. It's really low rate production, small batches, so that uh, uh, in the later 30s, there's about 50 to 60 aircraft available, uh, PBY TAC-1 all the way up to PBY TAC-4. And it's, it's in the late 30s that we start producing the, the five model. So going along with that are the uh, documents such as this manual. It's a tentative manual for defensive advanced bases. And if you do a, a search of the document, you find references to seaplanes in five locations. And these two struck me uh, as I look back in history they started out with these biases and the biases, are, uh, they're not, neg I'm not, I don't mean bias in the sense that it was negative. It was just, this is where we were in the thirties. So advantage as supporting base furnishes sheltered Harbor for operation of patrol planes and other types of seaplanes. So patrol is mainly what they're there for. Sometimes they were used as carrier aircraft uh, between the fleet and a base, but mostly they were patrol yeah. aircraft. Disadvantages incident of, uh, to their operations, well, less performance. 
So you now are carrying a boat structure as part of the aircraft. So it's, you've got additional weight, additional structure. Difficulties in water handling. So at this time, uh, flight was the main issue and the idea of water handling had not been investigated thoroughly. So probable lack of beaches. They had not experimented with the idea of landing on a beach with a seaplane. And the idea of hauling out. So you needed a ramp in order to get the carriage underneath the seaplane, much like uh, a civilian would use for uh, you know, a personal boat where you would run a trailer into the water, pull the boat up, hook it up, and then winch it onto that trailer. Similar approach, but with a tractor. And so they had this whole concept of hauling out because there were no wheels on the seaplanes at this time. So we enter the war in 1941 with these concepts and the idea that the patrol plane is now part of, it's part of the aircraft carriers task force. So let's look at the, the missions. So we have the, the Dumbo mission. So that's recovery of air crew. And that was occurring before this example. I'm just bringing out some examples uh, here. This is Midway Island. Uh, it's an atoll. So you've got a coral reef that surrounds it. And this is actually a pretty in-depth photo. I can zoom in pretty far. This appears to be a PBY here that's taxiing towards Eastern Island where the runway was or is. Sand Island was intended as a submarine base and a seaplane base. So on the shore here are ramps. This is the ramp uh, as it exists today. This is a Department of the Interior photo. And in June of 42, Midway finds itself as a target for the Japanese. So the battle actually begins on the 4th, although the forces are, are moving towards each other earlier. On 4 June, the aircraft from Midway and the aircraft from task, the United States Task Force 16 and 17 uh, engage the Japanese and sink for their aircraft carriers. Ensign Gay from Torpedo 8 from the Hornet is shot down and he's sitting in the water for a front row seat to watch all of this happen. And he manages to hide under a, a, a cushion when the Japanese approach to investigate. He's rescued the next day by a PBY-5 out of, out of uh, Midway and he's brought back given medical care, and then put onto a PB2Y Coronado, which are flying up from Oahu to Midway. So he's flown back on the 5th to the 6th, and he's able to provide eyewitness testimony as to what he saw to Admiral Nimitz. So Nimitz broadcasts a message to the uh, task force 16 and 17, notifying them that yes, all four carriers were sunk. So they're fully aware now that the enemy threat has been blunted. So there's about 30 seaplanes here. They continue scouting, patrolling, but now they're also doing this Dumbo mission and they recover between 27 and 29 aircrew during those days. So they land at sea, pull the people into their PBY, the, the interview with Ensign Gay is available if you want to read about the details of it. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting to hear the, the perspective. They also found 
a lifeboat with 35 Japanese from the Hiryu, it's, uh, the last aircraft carrier to be sunk. And so that was an intelligence find for uh, the Navy. They were recovered, rescued by a ship uh, on the 19th. And one of the officers was a lieutenant commander in charge of damage control. So it was a, it was a good find for uh, the intel community. So these were the aircraft that the U.S. flew, uh, the Catalina and the consolidated uh, Coronado. And then with the car, uh, with a Martin Mariner that appears in 1942, this is how we fought the war, basically. So you, you can see production-wise, there's about 3,300 of these built, including a uh, PBY TAC-6, which was a uh, modified version of the PBY-5. There were only 200 of these built, but they were flown steadily through the war. And these survived the war. They were, we continued building those into 1949. And during, uh, during the war, all of these became part of air operations for this Dumbo mission. So as we move into uh, campaigns across the Pacific, whether it's air raids on truck or uh, air campaigns along the coast of China or Formosa or Japan, these aircraft become critical to picking up downed air crew. One of the, the experiments that have to be done is how do we take off and land in open sea? So the Coast Guard in 1944 are given a handful of PBM mariners to experiment and determine what's the best procedures for this. And between October and March, they're taking off and landing in very high sea states. They've got instrumented aircraft with accelerometers uh, about the size of shoeboxes. Accelerometer today is, is uh, about a quarter of the size of a uh, uh, Coke can. The data collection systems are about the size of a desk. Uh, it's fairly large. Uh, so it's, it's really intriguing to get it as an engineer to get to look at some of these documents and see the test data that's collected. Also to see some of the, the way they bent the airframes. Uh, they, the Coast Guard really pushed the limits on these airframes. And th there's photos also of, of the stresses and warping of the structure. But the end result is successful knowledge of how to land and take off in higher sea states and what aircraft to use them at, uh, such that by the mission in Okinawa, we start seeing the ability to land, taxi in towards, so we land on the open sea, taxi in towards land. So we're, we're not in the range of anti-aircraft guns, you're in the range of, of coastal artillery and you're able to pick up personnel and rafts. And so they rescue 81 air crew during that six week time frame. Moving on to air sea rescue, we have the USS Juno, which is an anti-aircraft cruiser classified as a uh, light cruiser, a destroyer, L&M Sumner class, and then we have the Indianapolis, a heavy cruiser that makes it all the way through the war, delivering the atomic bomb to uh, the Marianas, and then is is sunk. So, start off with the Juno. The Juno is in a, a surface engagement in the Solomons, and is damaged. 
So it's sailing back along with the USS Helena and the San Francisco, both damaged. All three ships are in formation, sailing back to Espiritu Santo on the night of 13 November 1942, when the, air, the Juno is torpedoed by a Japanese submarine. The ship goes down very rapidly within seconds, and a little over 100 sailors make it into the water. So they're, they're at sea for about eight days, and a PBY passes by and, and locates them and is able to pick up a handful of people. Ships also uh, rescued a couple of the survivors. So that's one of the early instances of uh, the U.S. Navy using their seaplanes to, to perform rescue of ship survivors. In 12, on 12 November 1943, there's a troop transport that goes down not far from Fiji, uh, a couple hours away from Fiji. It's on a route from uh, San Francisco to Townsville, Australia, and it's carrying 1,429 aboard when it was torpedoed. So four ships collect 1,283 men before rough seas stopped them. So the ships were packed and they moved on, leaving uh, another 40 or 50 people at sea on their rafts. A PBM landed at Suva, Fiji, unloaded its cargo and took aboard a pharmacist mate and flew back. It landed in the rough seas and picked up the, the remaining survivors. So basically, they, uh, the way it's described, they landed and then trailed the rafts, pulling in people as uh, they connected with the raft. So they were able to pull aboard 48 survivors. It's one of the largest uh, takeoffs for a PBM Mariner, largest loads for a PBM Mariner during the war. The Cooper experiences uh, some problems in uh, a battle in Leyte, uh, Leyte. So this is after the Battle of Leyte Gulf. So the night of 3 December, it's in formation with two other destroyers. And it's in combat with two Japanese destroyers, uh, shore artillery, and Japanese aircraft during a uh, moonlit night. So after the moon sets, the three American destroyers managed to sink one of the Japanese destroyers. However, the, the second Japanese destroyer puts a torpedo into the Cooper amidships, and the ship breaks up and sinks uh, rapidly. About 170 people make it into the water, and they're in the water until the next, till later on the third. So that afternoon, two PBYs come in, one flown by Lieutenant uh, Joe Ball, lands and rescues 56 sailors and takes off overloaded by 3,000 pounds with a uh, takeoff run of three miles to get airborne. The other aircraft piloted by Lieutenant Melvin uh, Asari rescued 44 with a, a similar type takeoff. So, and then the Indianapolis, the Indianapolis is in uh, July, August of 45. So the night of 30 July, the Indianapolis is torpedoed by a Japanese submarine and survivors are, are located on 2 August by, they're spotted by land-based aircraft 
a PBY Tech 2 from the Army Air Corps drops uh, life raft and radio. Then a PBY 5A arrives, flown by Lieutenant Commander Robert Marks. And it's a high sea state. There are 12 foot seas. Uh, so that, that's not a good condition for the, the Catalina to be able to take off, to be able to land and take off. So he took a vote amongst his crew and they decided to put down knowing that they would not, uh, likely would not be able to take off. And that's what they did. They, they pulled 56 survivors from the Indianapolis aboard their aircraft. Uh, they lashed some to the wings and they sat out the rest of the day into the night waiting for the first ships to arrive. So that's, those are some examples of how the, the seaplanes and amphibious aircraft were used for air-sea rescue. So let's move on to the transport mission. So here we have theme one. So this is German Luftwaffe, Luftwaffe operation from 10 May of 1940. So this is the start of the German invasion of Western Europe. So the war started in September of 39. This is 10 May of 1940. And the Germans moved to overrun Holland as rapidly as possible. So on that day at dawn, 12 specially adapted Heinkel 59B biplanes shown here. So they're uh, pretty uh, old, considered obsolete technology by everyone else. They've been modified, added uh, seating for about a dozen German combat engineers and infantry. So there were 12 of them. So you've got over a hundred infantry and engineers that are landed below the bridge, the Wilhelms Bridge in Rotterdam. And they seize the bridge. They hold that bridge being reinforced by an airdrop of uh, parachutists at a nearby football stadium who are transported over. And that combined force holds the bridge for five days until uh, the Dutch surrender and German forces arrive in the city. So uh, nine of the aircraft were able to take off after uh, unloading the, the combat engineers and infantry. Japanese Navy operations. So this is the Emily. So the H-8K was used in a series of operations for scouting primarily. But early in the war, in March of 42, we have two H-8Ks flying from Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands out towards French Frigate Shoals, which is northwest of Hawaii. They rendezvous with Japanese submarines and refuel. They continue on and they bomb Pearl Harbor at night. And then they return back to Kwajalein. So they missed the harbor. The bombs dropped uh, uh, outside the targets. But they were able to demonstrate the idea that, that these aircraft could deliver, deliver bombs. In August of 42, so the US invades Guadalcanal. And a week later, a week or so later, we perform a raid on Macon Island from submarines. The Marine force that's raiding the island sees an H-8K approaching. Apparently, the aircraft was going to deliver reinforcements during the raid. It overflew the island and then attempted to land, and the Marines shot it down with uh, small arms and anti-tank rifle fire. So the attempt to deliver the reinforcements failed. Uh, unfortunately, I've not found any other examples of the Japanese using their seaplanes in a transport role towards the forward area. So 
for the, the Tokyo Express concept in the Solomons where they moved reinforcements and equipment and supplies down to Guadalcanal. It was always done by destroyer or by submarine. I've not found any records where they, they flew these aircraft forward and unload, unloaded them and then flew them back. Not to say that it's not out there, it's just I haven't found it in the English language publications. So coming back to the United States, here's an example of the PBY-5A on a beach. There's uh, other images of seaplanes, black cats they were called. They were painted black so that they could fly at night with less uh, visibility to them. There's a Jeep. Uh, there's a sailor next to the aircraft. And it just gives you a sense that uh, we learned as the war went on and we were able to use a uh, shoreline that was, was appropriate for this. The other images that I located show actual shops along the shore and uh, Catalinas in different stages of maintenance uh, on the beach or along the, the jungle edge uh, hidden. So. Here we have a JRM Tech 3 Philippine Mars taking off from uh, the West Coast. It's using JATO bottles for, for assisted takeoff. In the, the post-war, what we see in the historical records, General Geiger commissions a team to explore the idea of the assault seaplane transport and the helicopter in 1946. We're looking at future mobility platforms considering the impact that atomic bombs may have on how we deploy our forces. So coincident with this study, the Navy continues procuring the, the PBM Mariner and transport versions and in patrol versions. And they also continue with this low rate production of the Mars. And there's experiments going on. So one of those experiments one of the Mars aircraft takes off from NAS Alameda. So San Francisco flies down to San Diego with 301 airmen aboard. So I, I could not find any photos of it, but the nearest I could compare it to, if you look at the internal uh, layout of one of these aircraft, it would be comparable to trying to put teenagers into a telephone booth. It's just that's how com uh, packed in people must have been. And I mentioned earlier about the takeoff run for the USS Cooper of the Catalina, where it was a, a couple of miles. The, again, there's no mention of it or, or mention that the JATO bottles were used, but the difference, you could not have taken off with that payload from a runway uh, without the, the jet assist, whereas here on the, on the seaway, it's possible. So additional experiments. Marines are disembarking uh, PBM from a PBM Mariner and loading it to rubber assault boats. And they're, they've anchored the Mariner such that the tail guns can be used to sweep the beach. There's other tests that are run with the P5M uh, Marlin, where there's photos of them in the well deck of an amphibious transport ship. This is prior to putting a flight deck above that well deck. So, uh, it was possible then to to service seaplanes there if you did not have a seaplane tender. The U.S. uses seaplane tenders. The Japanese use seaplane tenders. The Europeans don't. Uh, they they rely on shore facilities or whatever they bring along with them. So 
continuing on, so that was the, the 40s, early 50s. We go into the later 50s and we have the R3Y trade wind. There's two models. One is a transport, the TAC-1, and then there's the TAC-2, which is uh, known as the flying LST. So it's got a uh, nose that opens up in this fashion and then a uh, series of ramps that will come down and allow to land on the beach. And the layout internally is much more like a C-130 today than uh, the Mars uh, aircraft had. So the, the trade wind aircraft and the Mars aircraft were large enough that the Navy christened them. And so these were all christened and named. Unfortunately, in 1958, all of the aircraft were retired. They were experiencing severe corrosion and there was an accident. One of the, uh, they were having engine problems. This was a, a new turboprop engine and the decision was made to retire all of them. So that left us with the P5M Marlin. The TAC-2 is incorporating all the lessons from World War II and prior experience. You can see here that the hull shape extends from the nose all the way to the tail. You can see this high high T tail section here, and it's it's got some unique attributes that were tested and used in different models, but now they were all brought together for this. And this aircraft flies until 1967 for the Navy. The Japanese introduced their US TAC-1 seaplane, which was the predecessor to the Shinmei-Wa, the TAC-2. And uh, if you look at the Japanese aircraft, you'll see many of these attributes. Similarly with the, I think it's the AG-600 that the Chinese are flying today. So the performance of the Marlin in surface operations was superior. Uh, there are records of them sailing for uh, uh, a couple of hundred miles on one engine. They would put down uh, in the open ocean if they lost an engine and then taxi back to port. So uh, there's at least one example where the mission was a couple of hundred miles uh, of taxiing. Uh, they rendezvoused with a ship, taxied in, in a pair. Uh, it was fairly rough on the air crew. The air crew experienced a lot of seasickness. So it's, it's a challenging platform to exist on if you're on the surface, but it's not impossible. So logistics and medevac. So here's an example of uh, using uh, a workhorse transport and then adding pontoons. So the Germans for their JU-52, they took a series of these and added pontoons. What this did was open up rivers and lakes for their ability to deliver logistics and perform medevac. So think uh, Eastern Europe and the, the ability to, to use those rivers and lakes, freshwater lakes. The US experimented with this in the C-47C, Charlie model. Uh, the pontoons were 42 feet long, five foot deep and uh, six foot wide. They carried fuel, uh, a nose uh, wheel and a, another wheel further aft. Only uh, I could find references to them being used in New Guinea and the Aleutians, but I, I have not found the exact number that were produced. 
over 30 of these pontoons were built and uh, between one and five of the aircraft were converted with pontoons. Apparently there's one available still up in Maine. Uh, so there is, there is a C-47C that you can actually look at. Uh, it's up in Maine. Uh, the Mars is actually flown uh, by Colson Air up in British Victoria, uh, British Columbia. So that's, that's another aircraft that's available. So another example from the Germans, you have the Blom and Voss uh, BV-138. Uh, so about 300 of these aircraft were, were built. And what's unique about them, they would fly out from Norway or from Scandinavia into the North Sea and the North Atlantic and land there and rendezvous with U-boats. So they deliver logistics, uh, in some cases fuel, some cases critical parts. At other times, they were actually used as per air attack on convoys. So uh, Voss built a much larger aircraft, something comparable to the Mars. It was a six-engine aircraft used for transport. So logistics personnel, medevac, very low rate production. So seven of the A series, four of the C series. So what you see is improvements in the engines, uh, some changes to the armament, but their main mission that it was successful at was logistics uh, as transport. So uh, moving on to the British. So the British Short Sunderland, uh, we're back to theme one again. So in the Battle of Crete, as the British were withdrawing from the island, they pressed their Short Sunderland into uh, transport and they were able to place over 60 soldiers into the aircraft and take off for Egypt. So they successfully uh, moved personnel using that. Later after the war, they, the British kept the, the Short Sunderland in its inventory and for the Berlin airlift, when the runways became uh, maxed out with transport aircraft delivering supplies for the relief of West Berlin, the British decided to start using the, the Sunderland to fly in from West Germany to West Berlin, landing on the Havel River. And interestingly, because the aircraft was designed to fly in salt water, uh, land in uh, salt water, they actually carried salt in the aircraft because it wouldn't corrode the airframe. So that was the, the logistics they carried, uh, was primarily salt. So what do we do if we don't have seaplanes? So this is, I, I just found this unique. Uh, the British are operating in the Falklands War 6,000 kilometers from Ascension Island, and uh, they no longer have, they no longer have uh, seaplanes or flying boats in their inventory. So they, they modify C-130s for air-to-air -air refueling, and they fly from Ascension Island out to a spot in the South Atlantic. The spot's labeled the, uh, the Tug Repair and Logistics Area. The C-130 has to uh, refuel three times during this trip, uh, which is a, a different type of experience because the aircraft that it's refueling from is faster so they actually have to go into a dive in order to connect the turboprop C-130 with the, the jet tanker. Once you arrive at the, the tug repair and logistic area, you basically drop your supplies or personnel into the South Atlantic to join up with a small boat or a helicopter. And so there's, there's at least one record of an officer from uh, 
the parachute battalion, the commanding officer who was a replacement, and he connected with his battalion through this route. So he parachuted into the South Atlantic, was picked up and helicoptered to East Falkland to take command of his battalion. So moving back to World War II, so here we have Wake Island. We're looking at another atoll. So you see this perimeter running around. That's a coral reef. This is your seaway for takeoff and landing inside of the coral reef. And here's your seaplane base. Pan Am is also flying from uh, uh, across the Pacific from Oahu all the way to China before the war. And so they have a hotel here and a ramp. And you have a brand new Naval Air Station seaplane ramp shown. So on the night of 21, 22 December, we have a PBY-5 arrive from Midway and they deliver news to the command that the USS Saratoga is approaching with relief. They fly out the morning of the 22nd of December and the decisions made to turn the Saratoga around. Beginning on the, the night of the 22nd into the early morning of the 23rd, the Japanese begin landings on the island and there are two Japanese aircraft carriers nearby supporting that, that the capture of the island. So it's, it's the last connection into the island was via that PBY-5. So another example, so that was December, a couple of weeks into the war. We're looking at the Western Pacific and the expanse of Japanese attacks through one March of 1942. So all of these red lines are showing the advances. By, by one March, you basically have a barrier here. There's an isolated force of United States Army personnel, Army and Navy and Marine personnel up at Bataan, Corregidor. Corregidor is at the mouth of Manila Bay. There's another force in Mindanao. Early April, Bataan surrenders. Mindanao is collapsing. And what's left is Corregidor. Corregidor holds out through the month of April. Two aircraft are launched from Darwin on 27 uh, 27 April, I'm sorry, they, they depart uh, Perth on 27 April, fly along the coast, refueling en route, arrive up in Darwin, take on medical supplies, critical, uh, critical ammunition supplies, and take off for Lake Lanao on Mindanao. It's a freshwater lake. They land there later in the day, and they spend the rest of the day on Lake Lanao, hidden along the shore. They're refueled. They take on more, more supplies. They unload their uh, machine guns and they take off for Corregidor. So that night they fly up to Corregidor, land in the East, the South China Sea, taxi in towards Corregidor and meet up with a ship. The ship puts out small boats and they exchange their cargo for personnel. So. PBY-7 takes on 35 personnel. PBY-1 takes on 25. They take off together that night, planning to reverse the pathway. So that one aircraft manages to land at Lake Lanao. There's bad weather. They become separated during the trip. 
The other aircraft arrives over Lake Lanao, can't find a hole in the cloud pattern. So they have to land on the shore. They take off again at dawn, fly into Lake Lanao, get refueled. The two aircraft attempt to take off. The first aircraft, uh, uh, the number seven aircraft takes off, successfully gets in the air. The number one aircraft uh, inadvertently hits a reef, holds its hull. They manage to get back to the beach where they create a patch. Unfortunately, the patch will only allow them to carry 10 of their 25 personnel. So they have to put 15 ashore and leave them behind. But they manage to take off. Uh, the number seven aircraft flies back to Darwin, arrives earlier. The number one aircraft, when it lands at Darwin, they've already come up. Uh, the air crew and passengers have come up with a plan. They immediately start bailing the aircraft out. Uh, and they're able to keep it afloat while it's being refueled. So they take off again, fly down to, to Perth. And when they land there, they had to beach the aircraft. So the aircraft wasn't a total loss, but uh, uh, it, it, the patch did not, uh, did not survive that many landings. So they were, they were successful in getting up there to Corregidor and then, and then getting back to Darwin. Another example, uh, we're back to Midway. I mentioned uh, Ensign Gay being pulled out. You've got uh, between Midway and Oahu, a shuttle service is established. There's two PB2Y Coronados that start flying up from Oahu to Midway beginning on 4 June, so beginning with the start of the battle. They're delivering 1,000 pound bombs and torpedoes and flying out with, with the casualties. And that continues for four or five days. Uh, based on all of the, the approaches that I've, I've read about, it probably continued with the recovery of personnel. So as people would be recovered, they probably, if there was not a local ship to take people back and, and the casualty needed to be returned quickly to better uh, facilities, then the Coronados would be used. So. And that continued, that service continued uh, for multiple days. So what we see here is the Naval Air Transport Service. And this starts to appear in, in an official capacity around 1 January. However, in January of 42, there's seaplanes and flying boats flying out of Oahu this down this route, depending on the range, landing at different airfield, um, different uh, seaplane bases and continuing down to Australia, originally with the intention of continuing on to uh, the Philippines or to the Asiatic fleet defending the Dutch East Indies, but then accumulating down here for the campaign into New Guinea, uh, into the Solomons, into the Gilberts. So the aircraft are delivering personnel, they're delivering uh, spare parts for other aircraft that are landing at the runways. So B-17s that are passing through, C-47s. This continues until 1 January when the Naval Air Transport Service is established. So the Navy squadrons include land-based transport aircraft and seaplane or amphibious transport aircraft. And the way they're, they're paired out, the runway will have a seaplane base adjacent, base adjacent to it. So if you were to go to San Diego, you could probably still find the seaplane ramp 
where it's uh, located. Similarly, uh, uh, I believe Pensacola had them. Uh, a number of Navy bases had seaplane ramps that allowed for the aircraft to transition from the sea to the shore. And that's what you have here. So there, there's an ability throughout the Pacific. There's also uh, seaplane tenders that are advancing and being positioned to enable uh, support for the seaplanes. Again, this is before the uh, capacity, the air transport capacity we have today with the C-17 and the C-130. So these, these ships provided critical support. It was also before the idea of, of providing a support facility on the, uh, on the shore of a, a beach. So what we see here are waypoints that uh, seaplane detachments are used to connect with the forward progress of the fleet. So as the campaigns move to the Northwest, places like Funafuti and Espiritu Santo become critical linkages between the seaplane detachments and the land-based transport squadrons. So you can see here, this is just a, another version of the progress we made in the Pacific. So this is behind the front. This is where the seaplane routes are, but there's a connector moving out from these locations forward. So January of 44, July of 44, you can see how far it's moved now and we're moving out even further. So air sea rescue, uh, Dumbo missions are moving out even further. Into November 1944, you can see we're into the Philippines performing more missions. May of 45, we're operating these Dumbo missions off the coast of Japan, Formosa, China, and we're able to recover personnel. But behind them all, you have these seaplane transports delivering the cargo, evacuating the casualties. So moving those, those critical items back and forth. So our, just in summary, you've got these two main aircraft. So a two engine, a four engine aircraft. You can see the quantities that were built. So Consolidated was building both of them. As the, the, we moved into the war, the engines became the same. So readiness and availability became important. You can imagine the support equipment, if the benefit of having same support equipment for both airframes. Uh, I've not been able to identify whether this aircraft used the same engines. The records I'm showing are, are different, but it doesn't mean that the, the rest of the support equipment in order to, to uh, perform the maintenance and hang off the aircraft while it's floating wasn't the same. So a lot of readiness and availability became uh, uh, ingrained in the production of these, these aircraft. Uh, Post-war, the Mariner is still flying. Uh, production continues until 49. I gave you a couple of examples of some experiments used. So these two are built by Martin, as is the P5M. And the Tradewinds is built by Convair, which is a successor to Consolidated. Uh, to give you some comparison with today, the JRM series, which is still flown up in British Columbia, that's got a comparable range to the C-130. The Tradewind, it's got a comparable payload to the C-130. It's not that it couldn't be rigged out for ferrying and for a longer distance, so to get that, that similar payload, but uh, it was really successful uh, 
with carrying the similar uh, payload. So, and it, as a note, these uh, Coronados became uh, a part of the Navy at the time. The, uh, by the end of the war, flag officers were flying them, flying in them uh, for the surrender ceremony in Tokyo Bay, Admiral Nimitz arrives aboard one. And Major Brown, that's, that's about it. Here's the, the references I used. The color references are written by pilots or an editor uh, combined all of the, the information from pilots. A series of them are great photos and images and layouts of aircraft. This has a, uh, an appendix that discusses uh, some of the challenges of seaplanes. And this document from NASA provides a good understanding of the progress that was made. And then there's a whole series of additional tech reports available from NASA and uh, DOD's DTIC. So, so Major Brown. All right, great. Thank you very much, Dr. Roach. And uh, as I just mentioned in the chat here to anyone who's got a question, Go ahead and start putting them in the chat uh, just to let me know you have one and I'll start calling on you. So with that, I've already got a couple queued up here that I'll uh, start turning over. So first, Mr. Ted uh, Vishian um, had a question. Ted, are you able to ask it directly? All right, I'll take that as a no. So uh, his question was, are there current production amphibious aircraft suitable for adaptation to military applications? So that's a good question. Uh, uh, to my knowledge, in the United States, I, I'm not aware of any being produced by uh, the United States. The Japanese are in low rate production for the, the Shin Mei Wa. Uh, the Chinese are building the uh, AG 600. Uh, I think the Russians may have an aircraft today, uh, but not. Uh, so in the United States, I'm not aware of it. There are some smaller uh, commercial aircraft, I think one out of Singapore uh the widget that might be its name it was written up in proceedings just uh to go along with uh what i was just talking about proceedings has written a number uh or published a number of articles on it on seaplanes in the last 12 months uh i think it's david alum also uh has been an author of a series of these articles one in war on the rocks and then uh at least another one recently about extending the range of an air wing using seaplane tankers. And that's referring back to the trade wind aircraft. So I hope that that answers your question. Yeah, um, no, I think that that's a, a good question to start off the discussion. And um, that kind of leads me to a follow on that I've been sort of kicking around. Um, it, I've read some of those articles by, uh, uh, by David and some of the stuff in the proceedings. And so, you know, knowing that we may not be building any any of those things ourselves, but you know other nations are out there. Um, but you know, comparing with you know the the naval services in World War II, where you know I, I think they had to build more, right? But they weren't sort of starting cold. Um, but is it is it a, a, a viable possibility if we if we wanted to adopt or, or readopt, I should say, this capability? Um, uh, you know from a cold start, or are we looking at something that would be, you know, potentially deployable within uh, a couple of years or so to the Pacific theater, or is this something where, you know, you're starting a brand new type model series, you know, we're talking about, you know, years or, or over a decade, maybe to actually see the capability. What are your thoughts? Uh, so 
So one of the worst answers an engineer hears is it depends. And that's the answer I have to share. Uh, it really depends on the acquisition approach. So if, if we wanted to start with you know, new technology, new engines and uh, new concepts, then it, it could be years. But if the decision was to, let's say the decision was to just build the airframe and use existing engines and existing uh, uh, flight controls, uh, that would take much less time, I would think. Uh, the existing data is available on the performance of the, uh, the different hull forms. So it's, it's uh, much more robust ability to model and simulate today and verify whatever is necessary through uh, experimental testing. So I, I wouldn't think it's as long, but it really depends on the acquisition approach. So it's probably an unsatisfying answer. It's, it's unsatisfying to me also though, so. Yeah, no, well, it's, it's certainly one thing in uh, that I've, it, you know, as a aviator myself, um, you know, I realize it, it's, it's not easy to, to just go ahead and build a new aircraft. Um, you know, even if you're building a modification off an existing aircraft, watching the time it's taken the 53 kilo to get into the 53 echo in the line, you know, it's not, it, it takes time. Um, so, Good example. Um, okay, so uh, going back to the questions in the chat here, next one from uh, Tim here, who I'll ask it for him. He's having some audio issues, but he's asking, you cover a lot of the technical issues with the development of amphibious aircraft. What were some of the doctrinal accompaniments to their employment? And is there anything coming out doctrinally specifically from China in the employment of their aircraft that you've seen? So I'm not aware of uh, how other people or other nations are using their aircraft. The historical uh, development of the aircraft uh, missions was really interesting because uh, I start off in this talk talking about the, the biases. They weren't known biases at the time. They were really technology gaps. We didn't know enough uh, that the platform could be used for air sea rescue. And by know enough, I mean from a doctrinal perspective. I imagine the users probably knew enough and understood what the limitations were as far as the sea state, the ability to take off and land uh, in different sea states, whether you're going to wreck your aircraft uh, just trying to take off. Uh, so I, I can't uh, say much more than it's just a natural progression and, and learning that goes on during a war. Uh, we basically learned what we could do with the existing technology and how we could apply it and then what modifications could be applied to improve the performance. All right, thank you. All right, next question I've got from Mr. Skip Crawley. And Skip, if you're able to ask it directly, I'll uh, turn it over to you and you go ahead. Oh, yeah, Ian, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I just clicked something wrong and I stopped the video. So sorry about that. Um, uh, so the question I had was, uh, you know, Howard Hughes uh, built a spruce goose as an amphibian. And uh, we all know that he uh, he built it out of wood because they want to give him, you know, the strategic materials, aluminum and such to build it. Uh, what I'm wondering is, do you know why he built it as an amphibian? And I say that in this context, um, because we all know that was a huge airplane. So that's one order of magnitude 
beyond a normal airplane you're building. Um, it was uh, made out of wood, so that's a second order of magnitude. Um, you're, you're making it uh, more complicated to build. And then making an amphibian, you're really, then you're adding a third order of magnitude. I don't know if I'm articulating it right, but either building that big of an airplane and or uh, building an amphibian and or building it out of wood adds orders of magnitude. So I'm wondering why you build it as an amphibian, because, you know, it would have been easier just to uh, extend the runways in England and, the, you know, to harden them. Any, uh, any, any thoughts on that, doctor? No, uh, I actually stayed away from that airframe uh, because it, it didn't make it into the war and it uh, wasn't a contributing factor in uh, the post-war. So I actually uh, did not include that in the set of uh, research that I looked at. Okay, all right, thanks. Great, thanks, uh, Mr. Crawley. So uh, next question I'll go to from Walker Mills, who I'll ask that as well. He's having some uh, connection issues. Um, but he was asking, and Walker, we did not cover this as I recall, so this is uh, certainly fair game here. Uh, he's asking if you think a, a wing and ground effect aircraft is a potentially better option than uh, traditional seaplane design for some of these missions. So it, uh, if, the, if the aircraft is you know, a viable aircraft, I, I don't see why not uh, for some of the missions. So it's, uh, I've looked at some of the videos for wing and ground aircraft that are being built today. And they seem to, you know, perform an equivalent level just at a different altitude. So, uh, but again, that's that's looking at the commercial version of the aircraft. It's not to say that there aren't, uh, you know, if a service was to look at the aircraft, they're gonna take a different assessment of it. So they're gonna look at the reliability, the availability, the survivability, uh, what missions they're gonna apply it to so again, the, the answer really depends on the viewpoint of the buyer, the user. Great, thank you. Um, so next one I'll ask, uh, I just had the name Martin here. I'm sorry, I don't have a last name, but kind of going to, you know, that back to the, the question of, you know, doing a, a cold start basically, you know, for a new type model series that doesn't currently exist. Um, in Maybe if you can give us some comparison in terms of, you know, say we went after this what's what was the training pipeline back when we had you know lots of these uh types of aircraft what did it take to train an, a, an amphibian or a seaplane pilot for all these different mission sets um sort of and you know with the con context of today where it takes about you know anywhere from uh you know a year to over two years to train military pilots on their their platform depending on its on its systems and then also uh do you have any thoughts or have you seen any other uh, countries or militaries look at unmanned amphibious or seaplane type aircraft? So I'll take the second question first. I've not seen uh, that aspect. It's it's not that uh, uh, I looked for it, but I've not come across much documentation or any documentation of unmanned seaplanes. Uh, the challenges are identifying the pattern of waves and coming up with the right spot to put down, to, to sit down on the water. Uh, that's, if you look at the report from uh, the Coast Guard, that seemed to be the challenge. Uh, you can also look at FAA guidance today, and it really takes, uh, I think it would take some artificial intelligence wrapped into an unmanned system that would 
really improve the likelihood of uh, setting down a manned aircraft successfully and collecting that data such that you could then replace the man with, uh, or the, the human being with uh, an unmanned system. So as far as the, the training, I, it, it was interesting that the veterans who wrote about their experiences didn't talk much about the training. Some of them talked about becoming a mission commander uh, for their aircraft, and that would take a series of weeks. So it was fairly rapid. Once you knew how to fly the aircraft, uh, you could become a mission commander in a series of uh, weeks. So that it was interesting now that you bring it up. The veterans didn't talk much about the stateside training that they went through. All right. Uh, well, thank you for uh, answering both those questions. Um, I'll go to uh, Mr. Thomas Heffern. Uh, Thomas, should you be able to ask your question directly? We'll give it a shot and see if it works. Um, yeah, just kind of curious if... Um, you're, if, if you, as an engineer, um, looking at the technical challenges that existed at the time and then potentially maybe led to the demise of, of the, the capability set and that we really haven't utilized it for the last, whatever, 40 or so years, um, what do you see are changes in technology now that may enable uh, a, a more viable amphibious or seaplane um, concept to reemerge over? So, uh on this topic, historically speaking, a couple of authors spoke to why we retired the technology. One uh, aspect that uh, arose was the loss of aircraft that might occur when they did an open sea landing. So that that was always a risk that uh, if you did an open sea landing, uh, it was possible to lose the aircraft. Uh, another aspect was the cost of acquisition, defense acquisition. So in the late 50s, the Navy is looking at many competing acquisition programs. So you've got the nuclear carrier, nuclear aircraft carrier enterprise, uh, nuclear submarines, the intercontinental ballistic missile uh, that's going to be launched from a submarine. You've got the, uh, the F-4 Phantom, and all of these programs were being planned and the Navy's looking at, you know, what should we do here? Should we start shedding some legacy equipment, legacy ships and the seaplanes and the seaplane tenders were identified as part of that uh, technology to shed. So with the shift from the Pacific, from, uh, you know, a peer on peer engagement in the Pacific to you know, something more European focused. Uh, so that that seems to be what authors are talking about uh, as far as the decision-making process. As far as the technology, uh, honestly, I, I couldn't say, you know, with any certainty, uh, the engines have improved. So that issue uh, is not as challenging. So the trade wind was, uh, an early use of a turboprop engine and they were failing. Uh, they'd failed during the missions, during flight. Uh, so that technology has, has really improved dramatically over time, uh, perfected. So combining it in a, uh, you know, a sea spray environment, uh, how well we can keep the sea spray out. Well, a lot of that was 
was mastered by the Japanese and we wrapped that into our P5M Marlin. So it, it's the technology is there. It's a matter of integrating, uh, you know, old concepts with the new concepts. Okay, thanks. All right, thank you. So um, we're coming up on about 80 minutes now. So I think um, I'm, we'll go ahead and uh, Dr. Roche, give you any, any final comments or thoughts you'd like to share before we close out here. I, I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak here and thanks for all the great questions. I really appreciated the opportunity to bring out uh, you know, even more about these these topics. These reference books are really valuable in the sense that, you know, they're not just discussions. They, they actually have great photos that show how problems were solved. So uh, if you get an opportunity to take a look at any of them, and you know, I, I recommend them. And the articles, the articles that I brought out here, uh, again, they're, they're good thought pieces about what could be done and some of the people who are are uh, thinking about them so thank you uh major yeah and uh, to you dr roach again thank you uh for your time today and putting together a very thorough presentation so to the rest of our audience uh thank you for joining us for today's broadcast show is going to be on hiatus for a few weeks here as we go into the sort of the summer lull in between students leaving and coming back to mcu but we are busy in the interim building out our schedule for the upcoming academic year where we'll continue to feature uh, subject matter experts like Dr. Roach, as well as uh, new and old non-resident fellows like uh, Walker Mills right here. We've got on uh, in the audience as well. We're working with him to have him teed up here later on in the summertime. So um, guests like this to continue to educate and generate discussion for Marine Corps University students and the Team Crew Lab community of interest at large. So enjoy the summer all, and thank you for joining us again today, and we will see you all in a few weeks. Thank you. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.